Time magazine calls this film a comedy of men's room humors and water cooler politics that now and then among the belly laughs says something serious and sad about the struggle for success, about what it often does to a man, and about the horribly small world of big business. Robbie Collin of the Daily Telegraph claims that this film stars shine as two essentially good souls trapped in a tangle of office politics. And Peter Bradshaw of The Guardian says it's not to be missed on any account. On this episode of Ruined Childhoods, we decide the fate of the apartment. Reboot. Which one will it be? It's the Ruined Childhoods Podcast. Greetings, Starfighters. How goes it today? <laughs> nothing nothing funky to, to do with the apartment for that one? I don't know. Pass the key? <laughs> yeah. Like, <laughs> greetings, Starfighters. Let's just all be shitty people together. I don't know. Oh, man. I, yeah. Uh, <laughs> this... Man. Is ruined childhoods. Thank you for listening. I'm John. That's Dan. Yeah. Hi. Yeah. So, and what we talk about is the reboots, remakes, sequels, prequels that are forced upon us. And hey, best case scenario, what you gonna do? We decide the fate. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's we like to just play around with the ideas of what what could it be if it had to be what could it be and for yes. anybody who's joining us because they loved our sister act episode you're in for a wild ride but unfortunately we don't have any family members to join us on this one no aside from no. each other because we're brothers yes no that's <laughs> yeah true i mean we are both uncles to each other's kids this is true we're recording this on something called national daughter day i found out on instagram i don't what? know what are we are we? Well, I, I am very proud of my daughter today. Oh, yes. You know what? I'm going to leave it at this. She stood up to a kid who was bullying another kid today. And like she put those, it was two bullies, apparently. I don't know if this is just her telling the story. Like after it happened, she was like, yeah, no, there's one kid calling names and the other kid throwing balls. And so she is her school's Rudy. Monster Squad. Yes. Yeah. Totally. And I am so freaking proud. I'm even prouder now that you put it that way because I didn't think about it. Until now. But like, I mean, as long as she doesn't start like, you know, smoking cigarettes when she I was like, going to say know, making bullets, making bullets in shop class. Uh, well, if she's making silver bullets to kill werewolves, then therefore she yeah, is again yeah. standing up to bullies. She's just up in the, the ante, you know. So. so before we uh, start talking about the apartment, uh, did you have anything more that you wanted to talk about with Sister Act? I do not. No. You know, I don't think I do I either. We anything... covered a lot of territory. Yeah. No, we covered every, we left no no stone unturned. So, yeah, I don't think so. Yeah. Uh, no. It was, but it was, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot, a lot of, fun of fun to do that episode. Uh, a lot of fun to record it, both with you and with our Uncle Dennis, who was an extra in the movie. Sorry, background actor. We're going to start calling I him a background, featured actor. background performer. Featured background performer in a different movie. 
Yeah, but that movie was like, so if you went and watched What Dream, if you went and watched Sister Act after that and were like, where's Uncle Dennis? You might you might not have found him. Also, because you have no idea what he looks like. I haven't posted his no. pictures on Instagram yet. By yet. the time you're hearing this, they'll be up there. Right. Um, so, yeah, I think what that dreams may come. What dreams see may him. come. Totally. Absolutely. Oh, you'll see him. So, Dan, I have been wanting to talk about the apartment since we started this podcast. You have been hesitant. I mean, I don't know if there's... Is, what's the reason why you were not quite ready to do this until episode well, 83? So, all right. So, The Apartment's a movie that I hadn't seen in quite some time. Now, I first saw it... I, I guess I was in high school, and I had a... I had a teacher, when, and my 10th my grade English teacher, Mr. Roberts, pour one out for Ed Roberts. Okay. Um, Mr. Roberts was a movie fanatic, and he had, his door was just covered with little snapshots from, like, movie magazines. His so he was class, the you. He was his, so you, we've described on previous episodes, my bedroom, which was covered by pages from Premier Magazine. Uh-huh. Imagine that on steroids and you've got Mr. Roberts' classroom. So naturally- you must have just loved that. I wanted to be in that guy's class from the time I set foot in that building. And I, I took it, I had his English class- 10th grade year and then i took his uh film course my my senior year which was amazing so it sounds like he and this is a little inside cranford the the hometown that uh dan and i are from but the uh the predecessor to miss everhart who was the english teacher uh i never had her for english i had her for film studies which uh i was really fortunate to have in high school i think that was a really uh a really nice treat the one movie that I definitely remember watching in that class was Dark City, which was wild. Oh, nice. Yeah, I know. It was awesome. Nice. Yeah, Dark City, great movie. Great um, movie. Yeah, but, you know, Scott, our brother Scott had Miss Everhart and was, the, she. he was, I don't know, like her favorite all-time student or something. I don't know. I don't know if she's still teaching, but for at least the longest time since I was a senior in high school in 2000 slash 2001, there was a poster of me hanging in her classroom uh, oh, next yes. to next to a uh, James Dean, you know, the James Dean poster where he's kind of like leaning against the wall with a cigarette. I recreated that wearing a Michael Jackson thriller jacket that I got off eBay in the early days of eBay. And she had it hung right next to the James Dean poster. And I mean, I guess this would have been over five years ago, maybe even closer to 10, that somebody went back to the classroom and saw it still hanging there. Um, oh, no kidding. I don't no. know if she's still teaching there, but it, no, but some the other legacy lived on it. it. Plenty, of so, other ki- plenty of kids wondering, who is that weird dude? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Is, is that Thriller Jacket? What? Is that a beat it jacket? Um, it was not a beat so, it jacket. It was not this a beat is, it. It, it was no. thriller, straight it was up thriller. thriller. So yeah, that. But um, anyway, so Mr. Roberts, Mr. Roberts had this amazing VHS collection, and uh, I actually still have the catalog that he handed out. It was typed, and it had like his own graphics. But this was before computers. This was before you just oh copy and paste the movie poster right. and the thing. Blah blah blah. blah. He. 
had these like copied pasted xerox like i remember the return of the jedi like poster being in there i i mean i'm sure i have it somewhere near where i'm sitting right now really? because uh, i found well i found it a few years ago when we, were, uh, okay. when we we went back to cranford and i did some rooting around uh as i was asked to dispose of things mm-hmm. and found mr robert's old like catalog and i'm pretty sure that's how i saw the apartment for the first time oh uh, okay. okay was i'm pretty sure i borrowed it from him i mean i remember i borrowed like apocalypse now from him oh wow that might have been that might have been my the first time i saw blue velvet whoa weird like he had blue velvet in in that collection witness i borrowed movies from him every weekend cuz he had all the classics i had never seen Mm-hmm. The apartment, included. yeah, and I mean, I it doesn't take a high school English teacher to tell you that the apartment is a classic. I mean, it virtually swept the Oscars uh, that that season, and I feel like deservedly so. I mean, I personally have always not well, always is such a strong word, but for a very very long time, I've been a very big Billy Wilder fan. I uh, clearly a lot of people would, would probably remember. Some of his work better, like Sunset Boulevard or some like at Hot. But for me, the apartment was like, that one is the one that speaks to me. Not because I identified with any of the characters, but I think the style, like the blend of drama and comedy and the way that it dealt with serious matters at a time when movies weren't made like this. And I think that I realized when I first saw it, probably around high school, that it was special, that it was just something different, especially coming out in 1960. And uh, another like fun thing that, that happened in my life, so I lived in Los Angeles for a period of time, and when I first moved there, I had a... My very first job interview was at the Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts, and Sciences, and... Uh, we we have family members who work there in various roles. I want to say security and accounting are the positions. I don't know. But, um, you know, the, the working at the academy and I got a job interviewing. Well, I got a job interview for mailroom supervisor, which is funny because it's like the cliche of like, oh, starting in the mailroom, which I think in a lot of industries like talent agencies and stuff like that is an actual thing. But I don't think that that was such a thing at the at the academy because at the academy, the person who had it that was leaving had been there for like 50 years. So or as, however long there had been in an academy was like there. So I was interviewing for that job and clear, like I did not want it. But when I walked into the building for the first time in a glass case was Billy Wilder's best director Oscar for The Apartment. And, uh, you know, when you are in your early to mid-20s and you have this idea of, you know, working in the, the film industry, just seeing an Academy Award, you know, f- that was given to somebody for a film that you love was you know it was a really special moment and it's pretty cool um i'm sure that you know a lot of people go into that office all the time and see it but you know it really uh 
I don't know, made me happy, you know, moving, it kind of was a signal like, you made a good decision moving to this city. I don't live there anymore, but that's neither here nor there. <laughs> no, it was, well, you made a, well, you know what, you made a good decision when you moved there, and then you made a good decision. I agree. When you moved to Portland. Yeah, yeah. So they are not mutually exclusive. This is I don't true. know what that. I don't know if I just used that phrase properly. So uh, I don't think I'm so. so. I'm sorry. It's been a. You know, I did a lot of English teaching this week, so I'm off the clock. So yeah. <laughs> I well, get a pass. Dan, then I hope that you don't uh, grade me on this synopsis because I'm sure that there, it is riddled with grammatical errors. But you know what? I'm off the clock. Let's hear it out. Okay, put the red pen away. New York is a city that will eat you alive especially if you're a minnow in a sea of insurance clerks at a big-name Manhattan agency, much like C.C. Baxter, who considers himself statistically insignificant in the grand scheme of existence. But Baxter has one thing going for him. He has a decent enough apartment on West 67th about half a block away from Central Park. After an executive at the insurance agency tricks him into thinking he just needs a place to change into a tux, Baxter's apartment becomes a revolving door of executives who are having affairs on their wives. In exchange for a small fee, Baxter ends up running a small, by-the-rendezvous B&B for a handful of execs with the knowledge that this may be the only way that he'll be noticed. And Baxter does find himself in just such a situation when his five clients band together to recommend him for a more deluxe position with his own office, and a big enough raise with which he can now afford things like bowler hats. But his promotion comes at a cost. One more client, Jeff Sheldrake, the big boss of the agency, but all of this is meaningless in comparison to his feelings for Fran Kubelik, an elevator operator who marches to the beat of her own elevator and isn't afraid to talk wise to the suits who work on all 27-plus floors. After Sheldrake books a time slot at Chateau Baxter, he gives him a pair of tickets for the music man that he can no longer use, as his time is, well, otherwise accounted for. Baxter immediately asks Fran to join him, and although she has some other plans, she agrees to meet up with Baxter for the show afterwards. What Baxter doesn't know is that Fran is Sheldrake's mistress, and she's about to see Baxter's apartment for all the wrong reasons. After Baxter is stood up, he returns to his place to clean up and finds a compact with a broken mirror, which he returns to Sheldrake with the understanding that it belongs to his mistress. That's when we get to the exciting holiday party. Baxter convinces Fran to leave her post and join the festivities, indicating that he has some pull at the company now that he's tight with Sheldrake up on the 27th floor. Oblivious to Fran's clear discomfort, Baxter shows off his swanky little office and asks for her opinion on his sweet new hat. But when he asks to borrow a mirror, and she presents the same broken one that he found in his apartment, Baxter puts the pieces together and is effectively bummed out. He drowns his sorrows in booze at a nearby bar and attracts the attention of a married woman whose husband is in a Cuban prison, but that's neither here nor there. Meanwhile, Fran and Sheldrake are at Baxter's place royally having it out about his married Facebook status, whereas she wishes it was at least, it's complicated. Sheldrake bounces and Fran decides to help herself to Baxter's ample supply of sleeping pills, generously established earlier in the film. When Baxter gets home with his new friend, he discovers Fran passed out in his bed. Assuming she has just tuckered out from a healthy session of whoopee-making with Sheldrake, he loudly announces that it's past checkout time and she needs to hit the road. Once he realizes what happened, he insists that his date takes off and gets the attention of Dr. Dreyfus, his next-door neighbor, who, along with his wife, assumes Baxter is a party animal with a different woman at his place every night, 
based on the sounds they hear and the empty booze bottles they see Baxter setting out each night. Dr. Dreyfus pumps Fran's stomach and slaps her around until she's awake enough to be properly cared for. Baxter, now also sobered up, fills Fran with coffee and takes on the role of caretaker. Over the course of the next few days, Baxter endears himself to Fran as he respectfully entertains her and cooks for her, but when her brother-in-law comes by to find her and misunderstands the situation, he decks Baxter and takes Fran back home. Impressed by Baxter's team playerness, Sheldrake gives him yet another promotion in a really sweet office on the 27th floor. Having caught wind of the Fran situation, Sheldrake's assistant slash former mistress spills the beans about the affair to Sheldrake's wife, who decides to divorce Sheldrake, leaving him open for a new life with Fran, who is convinced that Baxter is going along with everything, having accepted his new position at the company. And that's the way it crumbles, cookie-wise. But that's not exactly true. Baxter quits the company on moral grounds with not even the smallest iota of a plan. As he is packing his boxes and getting ready to move out, Fran rushes to the apartment, and we can only assume that they begin a lovely, uncomplicated life together. So Jack Lemon plays C.C. Baxter. Uh, C.C. stands for mm-hmm. Calvin Clifford. Uh, he is also called Bud or Buddy. Shirley MacLaine plays Fran. Fred McMurray is Sheldrake. Uh, and then those are the main ones. We can get into some of the the smaller characters, but... Yeah. I would also suggest C.C. stands for Carbon Copy. Ooh, touche. Well, touché. there's a lot... So. Before we get into it, John, I don't know if this was intentional. Nice callback to Sister Act. Whoopee. Oh, yeah, that that did go through my mind as I was writing it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so you're right. I mean, the movie starts off with a monologue by Baxter talking about how insignificant he is. On November 1st, 1959, the population of New York City was 8,042,783. If you laid all these people end to end, figuring an average height of five feet, six and a half inches, they would reach from Times Square to the outskirts of Karachi, Pakistan. I know facts like this because I've worked for an insurance company, Consolidated Life of New York. We're one of the top five companies in the country. Our home office has 31,259 employees, which is more than the entire population of uh, Natchez, Mississippi. I work on the 19th floor. Ordinary Policy Department, Premium Accounting Division, Section W, Desk Number 861. My name is C.C. Baxter, C for Calvin, C for Clifford, however most people call me Bud. I've been with Consolidated for three years and ten months, and my take-home pay is $94.70 a week. The hours in our department are 8.50 to 5.20. staggered by floors so that 16 elevators can handle the 31,259 employees without a serious traffic jam. As for myself, I very often stay on at the office and work for an extra hour or two, especially when the weather is bad. It's not that I'm overly ambitious, it's just a a way of killing time until it's all right for me to go home. You see, I have this little problem with my apartment. I live in the West 60s, just half a block from Central Park. My rent is $85 a month. It used to be 80 until last July when Mrs. Lieberman, the landlady, put in a second-hand air conditioning unit. It's a real nice apartment. Nothing fancy, but kind of cozy. Just right for a bachelor. The only problem is I can't always get in when I want to. Very Fight Club. I thought it was... It I, is very I, Fight Club, yeah. 
And I, I, I really think like, I don't think I've seen this movie probably since the first time I saw Fight Club in 1999. Oh, wow. So it's I, been a I, I mean, I, I owned it on VHS. Mm-hmm. So that kind of places it in a time and I never updated to DVD. Gotcha. Okay. So, um, there, there were a lot of things that I, that I never noticed. Um, but in having Fight Club as a frame of reference, I looked at, and I know Fight Club is very, uh, in, in many ways, comparable to The Graduate, which I think we discussed on The Graduate episode, where um, on the commentary track for Fight Club, they talk a lot about how they took cues from The Graduate, not necessarily in terms of story, but in terms of presenting that central male figure who's just kind mm-hmm. of like a nobody yeah. who goes through this like existential crisis. Sure. Yeah. To the extreme in, in Fight Club. Um, and yeah, yeah. but it, and in this case, he's less I, I think in less case in this in this case, I think he's like less aware of it or like he's almost numb to it. Well, yeah, you know, he's and he even says something to Fran at one point about how you know, I used to live like Robinson Crusoe. I mean, shipwrecked among eight million people. And then one day I saw a footprint in the sand and there you were. Meeting her somehow gave him a sense of purpose. Whereas before he was just like kind of happy being a cog in the machine and kind of just accepted his role as the proprietor of this, you know, B&B for these awful men. Oh, well, that was how he decided. It's kind of like he's so average and so unremarkable and jack lemon is such a great actor and i want to preface Mm. everything i'm saying uh about the movie that's critical of the characters i have no criticism of this movie i Mm. think watching it re-watching it now it is before its time and i mean granted it doesn't i was looking at the oscar nominations uh the the competition I th- I thought that Psycho had been nominated against it. Psycho had not been nominated oh, okay. for Best Picture. Psycho, I believe, didn't get like great reviews when it first came out. Uh, the Apartment got mixed reviews too. Oh, did it really? Well, I know yeah. that it got a lot of criticism for you know being this debaucherous you know movie that with these people with no morals. Well, it was. Um, I mean, he he want, Wilder wanted to make it in the '40s or make something similar mm-hmm. in the '40s, but because of the code, right? Make a yeah. movie better. So yeah, so um, so yeah, Billy Wilder won for The Apartment, but Hitchcock was nominated for Psycho. Okay, so Psycho was nominated for Best Director. What's crazy? What's really interesting to me is, uh, not crazy, but like, so The Apartment won for film editing, mm-hmm. which is great, which is fine, but. Psycho was not nominated. Not nominated, really. Not nominated. And Spartacus was up and didn't win. Mm. I'm like, uh, I, you know, I'm not that I'm like a film editing expert, but I also, I'm like, really Psycho? But the competition for Best Picture was the Alamo. Okay. The John Wayne version, not the Dennis Quaid version, clearly. <laughs> right, of course. Elmer Gantry. Okay. Sons and Lovers. Okay. And The Sundowners. Huh. You know, and it's interesting, and I can't say I've seen any of those movies, to be honest, 
But I, yeah, I've, I don't mean to. I know of some of them, but I don't. But that's the thing is like, you know, this 1960 or 1961, whenever that Academy Awards was. But, you know, it's at a time when there's more of a shift in filmmaking. And I think that movies like Psycho and The Apartment are ones that were starting to kind of veer off and do something differently. And it's kind of like the others, I don't know, seem like they would have been probably from the previous era where like, you know, it's, I don't know if playing it safe is the right way to say it just because I haven't seen those movies, but I get the the impression. Right. I get the impression that John Wayne at the Alamo. (laughs) Yeah. Well, right. You know, I just get the impression that this was just different enough but not psycho different and maybe that's the difference yes no i yeah. i i totally agree with you and in fact it it kind of matches up with um a movie that takes a lot of cues from the apartment admittedly by the its director mm-hmm. american beauty oh yeah which and you know kevin spacey uh uh when he when he won his oscar for american beauty dedicated it to jack lemon's Lemon. but and like specifically like because of his performance in the apartment yeah well, so, a lot of a lot of a uh, lot of similar themes between those but two i would cons- and i would consider american beauty to be the type of movie that pushed the envelope yeah. in 1999 but not to the extent of a movie like being john malkovich my personal right. best picture of 1999 or magnolia oh yeah wow what a year what a year I, being oh. john malkovich and magnolia are some of my favorites and uh american beauty is you know if before we knew about how much of a monster Kevin Spacey is. Great movie. Well, and I, I, yeah. And also, I mean, I feel like there, there are some things in that movie, mainly kind of like the pedophilia that. Right. They, when I was, when I watched the movie at age like 20, 22, when it came out or 23, that didn't bother me. Uh, well, yeah. It didn't bother. I'm sorry. It didn't. It, I was like, I looked at it and I was it like, it didn't oh, bump you. Is, I was like, this is all. right. Well, it, to yeah. me, it, it seemed more of like a surreal, like the movie had kind of a surreal nature to yeah. it. But the thought of watching it now, I haven't, I haven't watched it in quite some time, but just because I watched it and, maybe like five or so years ago. And as far as Annette Benning movies goes, I mean, she's fantastic. You know, you could have some really fun backyard get togethers out here. The ad said this pool was lagoon-like. There's nothing lagoon-like about it. Except for maybe the bugs. There aren't even any plants out here. What do you call this? Is this not a plant? If you have a problem with the plants, I can always call my landscape architect. Solved. I mean, I think lagoon, I think waterfall, I think tropical. This is a cement hole. Uh, I have some tiki torches in the garage.
She's outstanding. And this is how good 1999 was. Mm -hmm. Brief tangent. Annette Bening did not win the Oscar for Best Actress because Hilary Swank and Boys Don't Cry, which... Mm. uh, Right. Yeah. No, it's understandable. I went to see that movie by myself and I I literally walked out of that movie and I was just like, I just feel like I have been punched in the stomach <laughs> hard. Wow. Uh, yeah. yeah. And, and and I also kind of feel like Annette Benning would have been a really good choice to play the Fran character had this been remade in the uh, in the 90s. You're taking it back. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, like, uh, well, I would say early 90s, late 80s, like the, the, how, when, sure. she, when she was in Grifters, like Annette yeah. Benning, mm-hmm. Grifters era Annette uh, yeah, and, and also if I I know we'll talk more about this soon, but I I was thinking about the apartment because it's like it's so weird that this movie hasn't been actually like remade remade, but I'm thinking about like over the course of time since 1960, had it been remade in different eras, like who would have been playing the different roles? And like mm. you know what, late 80s, early 90s, it could have totally been a. I mean, like Tim Robbins or John Cusack, uh, you know, and uh, and Annette Benning. You know, I c- you can just see the different people in different eras who would be really good at playing that kind of Jack Lemon role, where it's like they can be funny, but also you can empathize with them in their emotions. And, and it's it's really fun to kind of play that game of just like in which era who would be playing these roles. Yeah, it's funny. When you said Tim Robbins, I wasn't sure if you were thinking Tim Robbins in the Sheldrake role, which I could see him doing like a little bit later, Tim Robbins. But I could see like Tim, I would say like, I I would almost say Hudsucker Proxy is like the borderline where Uh it's like, that's where he went from like the Bud Baxter to the, you know, it was, it was, I mean, well, Shawshank from there. So, right. Yeah. That was the same year. Was that really? I love the Hudsucker Proxy. It's 94, another Jeez, don't get me started so, on 94. So going back to The Apartment a little bit more, uh, it's really, it's such a fascinating movie because it, yes, deals with these despicable people doing their awful thing. And it's just kind of like, this is the bar. This is where the bar is for people. These are the successful people. And this just established, this is what they do. And you have the characters like Fran who are kind of just slave to the way that things are and Baxter's kind of slave just to the way that things are he just finds himself in this very weird situation that he just can't get out of unless he wants to get fired from his job or leave his job he's pretty much being held hostage by these executives who want to use his apartment Uh, you disagree I I have to take issue with that because he's voluntarily doing this like he's voluntarily doing it but I don't think that I do think that he wants to stop doing it, but he just can't. But he doesn't want to stop doing it as much as he wants the key to the executive washroom. Yeah. I, I, he you wants, know, that's every time he tries to stop, every time he, I mean, like the guy is sick. Right. He's sick because he can't get, be in his apartment all night. He has to stand outside. He has a cold. And meanwhile, and he's sitting there like it's painful. The scene where he's on the phone where he's sitting there calling everyone back and forth, trying right. to schedule and reschedule 
Like that's his job and he's putting more energy into that than his job so that the only way he can get by is by letting the execs use his apartment as like a little fuck pad. Commander of Public Relations. Oh yes, Baxter. Uh, just a minute. All right, Miss Finch, type up what we got so far. Look, Mr. Vanderhoff, I've got you down here for tonight, but I'm going to be using the place myself, so I'll have to cancel. Cancel? But it's her birthday. I already ordered the cake. Oh, but I am sick. I got a terrible cold and a fever, and I got to go to bed right after work. If you got a cold, you go to a Turkish bath. Spend the night there. Sweat it out. That's the way you get pneumonia. And if I got pneumonia, I'd be in bed for a month. Okay, you made your point. We'll just have to do it next Wednesday night. It's the only night of the week I can get away. Wednesday, 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 Wednesday. I got somebody penciled in. Let me see what I can do. I'll get back to you. Oh. <laughs> You're Mr. Eichelberger. Oh, yes, Baxter. What's your problem? Wednesday is out. Oh, that throws a little monkey wrench into my uh, agenda. Thursday? No, I'm all tied up on Thursday. Let's schedule that uh, meeting for Friday. Friday. Let me see what I can do. I'll get back to you. Premium-wise and billing-wise, we are 18% ahead of last year, October-wise. Hello? Yeah, Baxter, what's up? Instead of Friday, could you possibly switch to Thursday? You'd be doing me a great favor. Let me check. I'll get back to you. Consolidated line. I'll connect you. Sylvia, it's for you. Yeah? Oh, hello. Sure, I got home all right. You owe me 45 cents. Look, Sylvia. Instead of Friday, could we make it Thursday night? Thursday? Well, that's the Untouchables with Bob Speck. Bob who? Well, all right, so we'll watch it at the apartment. Big deal. Hello, Baxter? It's okay for Thursday. Thank you, Mr. Kirkaby. Mr. Eichelberger, it's okay for Friday. Mr. Vanderhoff, okay for Wednesday. Yeah, I think he's just in a position where he just can't get out of it and he's he not strong enough to want to get out of it. He is, he's just, yeah, well, they're not strong enough, yeah, but it's, that doesn't mean he can't. He, and and this is sorry. This is I, let me let me elaborate because I think it's part of the point. Okay. Because I I mean you know I I always with with filmmakers like Billy Wilder, I always assume like they've got they've got something else going on. It's kind of like the discussion oh, we had about Blake Edwards totally. with the party. There's more going on here, and I'm not as familiar with Billy Wilder, but to me. This seemed like a real indictment of what the the rat race and it stems from. And I know he initially got the idea in the 40s 
But in the fifties, mm-hmm. you have this major, like the, the, guys who live in the it's madmen you know they live right, in the right, suburbs right. they take the train in they have their mistresses in the city and part of why they would have these mistresses in the city was because they were working so late because once you got to that level there was always someone i mean that's why they called it the rat race because rats will live, like will crawl and p- claw on top of each other to get to the top of the pile yeah so and like there's this big, uh, really famous novel that was adapted into a film in the 50s called The Man in the Gray Flannel Suit. And it was just all about kind of the, well, this is what's expected now. And right. being the, you know, the CC, the the carbon copy, the cog in in the wheel, constantly trying to get ahead. And that's where CC comes in, because he really only is thinking about himself. He's a guy who's on his own. Yeah. And I think that oh, ahead, we I think that we agree on this, but what I'm suggesting and what one thing that I that I do appreciate about movies like The Apartment is that they they start after everything has been established. You're getting caught up to where we are at this moment in time. We don't see the genesis of how this apartment became what it ended up becoming or how Baxter ended up getting a job at this place. What we, you know, we are just launched into it. He catches us up in a way that describes his insignificance. And to me, it's like, yes, he is part of this rat race. He is challenged to be successful in a position where it's extremely hard to be successful and you do whatever you have to do to be successful. But I feel like there's something about him that is... I don't know. I think that his like subconscious doesn't care about all that stuff. I think he's just doing all that stuff because he's been told that, you know, the goal is to get that office and the goal is to get the key to the executive washroom. I don't think that he truly cares about that. And if he did truly care about it, then he would have stayed in that position at the end of the movie. You know, he didn't have a plan. He wasn't even guaranteed to get the girl. He just knew that he had gone too far this all wasn't right, and he has to get out of it. Right. Yeah, he figures it out after she ODs in his apartment. Totally, and I think that it was in him all along, but I don't think that he had that turn, yes, until she OD'd, until after she OD'd, really. No, and to to your point about his... Um, kind of like his doing what he... what is expected. There's There's a lot of that in the in the movie and i think it shows that what that what is expected is that you are going to look at and he's constantly talking about status symbols yep and it, everything what from floor I you're mean, on who you know I mean, who you're tight with well what who you know who you're tight with the hat when he gets mm-hmm. the hat even when he's playing when he's playing cards and she's exhausted and she yeah. has no inch he doesn't that's the thing is like in most most of their interactions are one-sided and she's like anytime oh, she tries to start totally. talking about herself or telling him something about herself he just makes it about himself again and said, "Oh yeah, well, I always say, and I oh, yep. and I do this, and oh, look at me." And I and and again, don't get me wrong, Jack Lemon is brilliant in this role. Right. This is a real, this is a realistic, this is a believable character. Yeah, but he is at the point, and and like you said, John, we 
we do see enough of the kindness in him to presume that like he wasn't always this way. He became this way. And you know what? We see what what happens. He sees what happens when you don't quit. When right. When you stay with it, because that's Sheldrake, and Sheldrake ends up, you know, kicked out of his house, and he doesn't have. He's lost Fran because he's been absolutely terrible to her. Right. Mm-hmm. And 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 now he doesn't really have what he had before to accommodate his affairs. Right, totally. And uh, just to give people a little bit more context on Fred McMurray, who plays Sheldrake, you know, just before the apartment, he was, you know, the shaggy in the shaggy dog. Tim Allen. No, uh, that was <laughs> yeah. the remake. But, uh, you know, he was he did a lot of these my, like my family. Friend- right. Exactly. It's yeah. Dad my on friends. my three sons. Dad on Fred my three McMurray. sons. But he did like all of these, you know, family movies. And this was such like a a wild departure for his brand and pretty fascinating and really well played by Fred McMurray. Uh, I believe he wasn't the first choice. I think the original actor died before filming began uh, Mm. and was uh, the part was, I think mostly rewritten by Billy Wilder for Fred McMurray because, you know, in, in an effort to capture more Fred McMurray. So Sheldrake played by Fred McMurray, is this, like, you know, he holds, you know, going back to the the gin rummy, he holds all the cards, and he's the one that is really dictating what's going on, but he has his family to take care of and is, you know, not around to be there while Baxter is just, like, completely endearing himself to Fran. And, yes, she... He's trying to, you know, get her to like play cards and stuff, but also it's kind of like his job to keep her up and to not let her, you know, conk out doctor's orders. Oh, we and we haven't really talked about Dr. Dreyfus, the Dreyfuses. Uh, the Dreyfuses are, okay, Fran is very sympathetic. Other than Fran, the Dreyfuses are the other sympathetic characters in this. Look, I feel we, all know, we all know what it's like to be the, the neighbor's who uh, hear everything from the place next door are annoyed by you know some some crazy neighbors and they don't know the truth and if they did know the truth they'd be completely appalled so it's kind of like the the lie that they believe that Baxter is just this you know playboy is much better than the truth <laughs> which is so sad um and yeah. you know it's kind of like it's a little odd. I feel like they're very stereotypically Jewish. And uh, the fact that he's the, you don't think so? Oh, no, no, no. I'm agreeing with you. I'm, oh, okay. I'm, I'm agreeing. I'm like, um, and, and no, I'm just saying, I'm like, okay, so that was, it wasn't just like, it gave me a little pause. It, 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 it yeah. took me out of it. <laughs> but you know, what's funny It's like, you, okay, he's a doctor. I, I think that there's the, I don't know, a bit of a stereotype with the doctor being Jewish, but also like Dreyfus's, I can't remember her name. Um, what's Dreyfus's wife's name? I don't have it written down. Mrs. This Dreyfus. Is, Mrs. Dreyfus. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, she's, you know, wanting to be a caretaker. She's like. Oh, it must be Mrs. Dreyfus. 
Do you remember the uh, doctor from last night? That's his wife. So there's the victim. Max the knife. No, little lady, how are we feeling today? I don't know, kind of dizzy. Here, the best thing for this is a little noodle soup, a chicken, white meat, and a glass tea. No, thank you. I'm really not hungry. Go right here and eat. Enjoy. You wouldn't have such a thing as a napkin, would you? Well, I have some paper towels. Beatnik. Go to my kitchen. Third drawer, under the good silver, there is napkins. Yes, Mrs. Stratton. So what are you waiting for? A singing commercial? I can't eat. You must eat. And you must get healthy, and you must forget him. Such a fine boy he seemed when he first moved in here. Clean and cut, a regular Ivy Leaguer. Turns out he's King Farouk. With the drinking, with the cha-cha, with the no napkins. A girl like you for the rest of your life. You want to cry in your noodle soup? Who needs it? Now you listen to me. You find yourself a nice, substantial man, a widower maybe, and settle down instead of notching all those sleeping pills. For what? For whom? For some good time, Charlie? Shh. One napkin coming up. I wish we had some champagne to wrap it around. What did I tell you? Mrs. Dreyfus, you don't have to wait. I'll, I'll wash the dishes. You wash them, you break them. I'll come back for them later. If he makes trouble, give me a yell. She doesn't seem to like you very much. Oh, I don't mind. I mean, I think they're they're believable characters. They are believable. I'm not complaining at all about them. It's just a little heavy with the you know the dialect. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. it's it's very community. It's it's community theater. It is kind it of. Is. It's the, and, you know, I'm going to see a Neil Simon play in community theater. Right. And, uh, I, you know, Groucho Marx was, I think, possibly going to take on that role. And uh -huh. I'm glad that he wasn't that role because then it would just be like, hey, it's Groucho. It's this Groucho Marx in this movie. It would be too much drawing attention to that the fact that it's Groucho Marx. So, yeah, uh, yeah instead, that's Jack Crucian. Who's who's great? I think that he's awesome. He definitely he was nominated for an Oscar. Was he really? Uh, yeah, he I was nominated for best supporting actor. It's man, they did not make very many movies in a, in a year at that time, did they? <laughs> I thought I he was like good, was, but like I feel like there was a lot that came out in '59. So I think like you know '60 was kind of the you know. It, it, it it's kind of like how it's like a big sweeping epic one year smaller yeah, yep. independent mm -hmm. art film next year right i feel like i don't know if i'm i'm disagreeing with you on on baxter being oblivious in that scene so i mean he's clearly oblivious in so many other scenes where she doesn't really want to talk to him and, and honestly we haven't talked about this but like he's kind of a creep uh, you know, he knows all her information. He knows all of her information because he works for the insurance company and he looked her up and he told he was bragging to her how he knows like her social security number. There's a great little band at El Chico, the village. Try to put around a quarter for where you live. Sounds good. How do you know where I live? Oh, boy. You know who you live with. Sister, brother-in-law. I know when you were born and where. I know all sorts of things about you. How come? Oh, a couple of months ago, I looked up your card in the group insurance file. 
I know your height and your weight and your social security number. You had bumps and measles <laughs> and you had your appendix out. Don't mention the appendix to the fellas in the office, okay? I wouldn't want them to get the wrong idea about how you found out. Bye. If I was her, I'd be like, okay, I'm going the other way. But she's just like I'm laughing reporting it you. Yeah. But I, I mean, I don't know if there was such well, a thing. It's 1960. Would, yeah. She'd report him to the head of personnel who was Sheldrake. So <laughs> I don't yeah, think that's really end. happening. But yeah, um, yeah that, I mean, that's kind of weird. I, and I feel like that also is part of the rat race mentality and, and not just the career, but also how you treat women where it's just like, you know, they are, you know, they're not just objects, but they are, you know, missions to accomplish. And well, and in terms of like in, what impressing the execs and things like that, it was yeah. like that was part of the game. And it was like, you know, oh, well, what's the matter? You don't have the, you know, mistress, what's the matter with you? Yeah. So, yeah, they were totally, I mean, damn, look at play a Ray Walston. Right, right. Hey, uh, yeah. As that, that uh, does not sound like Ray Joe Wilson. Dobich. Yeah. And yeah. So uh, I don't know. And Shirley MacLaine, uh, who's Fran, is <sighs> excellent. She's oh, excellent she's in this. so good. She's so good in this. She, you know, you really get the feeling like right off the bat, like this woman is different. Like th- it is obvious why somebody like Baxter would be interested in her. And she's got the little, she's got the little pixie got the haircut. Pixie cut. And she also she's she's kind of sassy and yeah, like when the when she, when she's on the elevator and the guy like you know grabs her ass on on the way out and you know she gives him a little a little hell for it not hell but you know nineteen watch your step and watch your hands, Mister Kirkby. I beg your pardon. One of these days I'm going to shut these doors on you and. 20 next. Right. But, you know, she is not shy. She speaks up. She, you know, she's just kind of trapped in this situation with Sheldrake, who she, I mean, we have to imagine that at some point she, you know, was, had fallen for him and couldn't take herself out of it. Of course, until she realized how much she cared for Baxter uh, but, you know, Sheldrake just had the spell over her. And even though she was just, you know, fighting him on it, saying like, look, if you're not going to leave your wife, then I got to get out of this. You have to stop calling me. But, uh, you know, of course, all the promises just kept on coming in, which, as we learned, was what he did with all of his mistresses, mm-hmm. uh, including mm-hmm. his his secretary. Secret- Ms. Olson, yeah. Yeah. Edie Adams. She's yeah. great. She's, she's really great. She's really great. She has that scene at the holiday party where she kind of corners Fran. She's like, oh, so you're the one and blah, 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 blah. And kind of like warned her. And then uh, she goes off and tells Sheldrake's wife about everything. That takes some cojones. Well, because she was like, she was there. She w- she, but she was the same as Fran. She had fallen for him, clearly. Yeah. And then got jilted for, she calls the newer models. Right. And so it's like, but she's clearly carrying all that around. And like, she's his secretary. But it's also, we're talking about like how Baxter's doing what's expected of him. These women 
are doing what's expected of them. Right. Yeah. And it's kind of like, that's how they're, you know, uh, it's like, that's what they've learned. They need to do to get yeah. by. But, and it's, I think that like, cause you see the other women, like, you know, the ones in the, in the, you know, the operators who the other executives oh, right. go out yeah. with. And, f- you know, Fran is different. And you totally. know that that Fran is like she's for, she's I guess like Cece she's kind of forcing herself to do this. She's con- she's teetering on the edge of doing yeah. what's expected of you and breaking away. Well, and I think the haircut mm-hmm. is such a great way to show that where all the other women are these the blonde and they've got like the Donna Reed or whatever like right. the bewitched hairdo and. She's got the little black, like, you know, the Eliza with a Z yeah. hair. <laughs> good morning, Mr. Good morning, good morning. Good morning, Mr. Good morning, Miss Living. Good morning, Mr. 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 Good you got a Lulu. Huh? Yeah, better not get too close. I never catch colds. Really? I was reading some figures from the Sickness and Actually Claims Division. Do you know that the average New Yorker between the ages of 20 and 50 has two and a half colds a year? Huh. Now, that makes me feel just terrible. Why? Well, to make the figures come out even, if I have no colds a year, some poor slob must have five colds a year. Yeah, it's me. People comment on it, and she's like, yeah, so what? You know, she's like, I'm not doing this to stand out i'm not doing this to make a statement i'm just being me so you can kind of tell that like this is it's harder for her to force herself into this position but i think that if she convinces herself she's in love with sheldrake it's okay right which i think she i mean she is but i think it's also like being in love with him makes it okay to be his mistress. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's so it's like I kind of buy that she's in love with him or at least that she really, really, really believes she's in love with him. But I also think it's it's what, for, for someone like her, it's what she needs well, to be in that role. Right. Also, she's in a difficult position because it's like she lives with her sister and her sister's husband and she's an elevator operator and you know somebody like Sheldrake is a you know a glimpse of just like what life could be like and mm. you know being 1960 it's just like the idea of success means so many different things to to so many people but there's really the one at the top that is the thing that's that's pushed on you the most which is just like you know money and the key to the executive having you know going out for the nice meals getting like whatever good tickets to the music man yeah hottest show on broadway i know what's funny is another movie that i thought about while i was watching this was american psycho oh yeah where they (laughs) constantly make the big like where they're constantly talking about like Les Mis as being like the big Broadway musical (laughs) so I I was like the music man is the Les Mis but I thought about American Psycho in other respects 
during this kind of like how Paul uh, Bateman in, in American psycho is almost meant to be like, you know, you're kind of like standard carbon copy, uh, you know, wall street trader circa 1987. Mm-hmm. So I just say I, Paul so, Bateman. I did say Paul Bateman. I'm wrong about that. Patrick, Patrick. Bateman. Yeah. Patrick. There was a Paul. Patrick. Jared Leto's character maybe was Paul. I can't remember. Uh, yes. So, yes. yeah. And it, I mean, I'm sure that you could like do one of, you know, one of those funky uh, like trailer cuts or, you know, where you take the the audio from American Psycho and you put it to the apartment because it's like, you know, there's the stuff of him with the records, putting on the record and dancing and stuff. And you can totally do that with the uh, <laughs> Phil Collins stuff. Like, oh. I bet that you can totally do that with these two movies. Say, this is Snugsville. Mrs. McDougall, I think it's only fair to warn you, you are now alone with a notorious sex pop. No kidding. <laughs> Ask anybody around here. As a matter of fact, when it's time for me to go, and I may go just like that, I have promised my body to the Columbia Medical Center. Gee, sort of gives you goosebumps just to think about it. Well, they haven't got me yet, baby. Dig up some ice from the kitchen and let's not waste any more time. Preliminary-wise. I'm with you, lover. You like Huey Lewis in the news? They're okay. Their early work was a little too new wave for my taste. But when sports came out in 83, I think they really came into their own, commercially and artistically. The whole album has a clear, crisp sound and a new sheen of consummate professionalism that really gives the songs a big boost. He's been compared to Elvis Costello, but I think Huey has a far more bitter, cynical sense of humor. Sabrina, don't just stare at it, eat it. That's, oh man, I didn't think about that, but I would love that. <laughs> That's fabulous. Um, but no, 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 just going back to what you were saying before and, and how we were talking about how you know, Fran's character and Baxter's character are kind of being pulled in these two different directions. And I, I think that w- w- the closer that Baxter gets to Fran, it's really pulling him more and more into the direction of being more free the way that she is experimenting with being free or, you know, get kind of just that like, I just don't give a fuck attitude. And I'd love to hear from somebody who was you know, in 1960, like working in New York at one of these types of places, you know, to, to know what that was really like. You know, we see, we see it a lot in a lot of different movies and TV shows. You mentioned Mad Men, which I believe the first season was 60 or even think 59 going into 60 or 61. Is the Kennedy assassination in that wasn't, I, I think it's six, I think 61 I know it was is, like early when 60s. Mad Men starts. Yeah. yeah. So it's right around this time. And uh, I don't know. I I think it's a, a really cool parallel to kind of look at these two maybe, you know, existing blocks away from each other at the same exact time. So, Dan, you know, 
I know I started talking I had a the little worst bit. thought in the world. I was, I was like, oh God, Don Draper probably banged Fran. <laughs> oh my God. Totally. And, and for her, it was just a fun thing to do. Yeah. He, he was one of the, anything. he was one of the four. <laughs> yeah. Or one of the three. So, uh, I, I talked a little bit about, you know, remake stuff and yeah, this movie hasn't been remade. Shockingly. I don't know if there's some sort of, you know, the estate of Billy Wilder having control over the property or something like that. But, you know, you have to wonder why, because it's something that could be, like I was saying, in every era of filmmaking since then, like you could see this being made. It, it Yeah, it the story is is kind of i would say timeless it adapts into different eras and it's it's really it's interesting because we've had a shot for shot remake of psycho Psycho. (laughs) from that year that is true that is true yes we i mean that's yes we have uh right but i also feel like the horror genre uh has its own life to it oh yes uh, cl- I, clearly, I mean, there were like how many sequels to Psycho? Right. I guess two theatrical, one made for Showtime. I don't know that you're uh, going to answer the qu- your own question, but there you go. I, I answer. You know what? I asked the question, and then my my brain responded, and yeah. my mouth echoed. So no, that's but what happened. The, you know, the apartment is just this great it, blend of comedy and drama, and serious real world issues. And it just surprises me that it hasn't come back up again. Except for in the form of a musical. Was there a musical? Promises. Oh, oh, Promises, promises. Yes. The, uh, I know Neil Simon, I almost said Neil Diamond. Was it, I mean, but it wasn't a direct line, was it? Or is it just similar in tone? It provided it. So it, it provided the, to quote Wikipedia, it provided the basis. So, um, but it's the same characters. Oh, is it the was, same? I didn't know it was the same characters. Well, it, it, Jerry Orbach played Chuck, Chuck Baxter. Right, um, okay. But yeah, Fran Kublik and uh, Edward Winter as J.D. Sheldrake. So it was... I didn't realize it was the same characters. Yeah, yeah, it is the same characters, and it is so. It and there's like a look, like she's not the elevator girl; she's a waitress in the company cafeteria mm. in this one because elevator musical. operators don't always stand the test of time, <laughs> especially yeah. if you're in a different era. Hey, yeah, but yeah, it's basically that's yeah, it is pretty pretty close to the uh, to the plot. And you know, I was thinking that it would make a good stage play, but I wasn't thinking musical. Right. Yeah. I mean, like I could I could see it being adapted kind of like with the graduate kind of like that was done with the graduate. Right. Yeah. You know, yeah, I just don't definitely I feel could play like that way. and I I haven't heard the music or anything like that, but I feel like it would give it too much whimsy to uh, set it to music. <sighs> yes, and yes and I do think that it is I I do think it's a lighter I do think it's a lighter retelling of the story. Gotcha. So I've never seen it, but it. Um, it's music I by Burt oh, Bacharach. You know, Burt Bacharach. I'll never fall yeah. in love again. Yeah. Oh. Um, 
Yeah. So Burt Bacharach and and Neil Simon wrote the uh, wrote the book, and Hal David wrote the lyrics. Funny that so, they would change yeah. the name, but who knows? Maybe that's you know Billy Wilder was like, you can do it, but don't call it the apartment. Yeah, I guess I guess so. I mean, that makes sense to me because honestly, if I was Billy Wilder, I don't know if I would want this turned into a musical. So there were about 1,300 Broadway performances. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a known... Of... I've heard, I had heard of it. Like, it's a known show. It's not necessarily one that often, like, you know, runs the high school circuit, but... Right. Uh, I guess for good reason. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so, Dan, I mean, what would you do with this property? Well... I think a remake is the most is kind of like the obvious choice that comes to mind. It's hard to imagine recasting the roles for a sequel. I feel like a, right. like like reca- but, but it would be interesting to see like a 5 years later like what happens assuming that they make it 5 years. Like yeah. I see Going well, back to the graduate. You know what, in, sorry, just one real quick. In yeah. this, in my synopsis, I even end it with, we can only assume that they begin a lovely, uncomplicated, uncomplicated life together. Because it's like, there's, it's not like hap- and they lived happily ever after. They just start playing cards and, you know, they give it a shot. For the That's moment. That's all we know. For the moment. For the but moment. That, to me, it's like, it's the graduate. You know. It's the I, end of the graduate where they're going off together and you're like, okay. I'd say yes, but they're kind of just like looking into each other's eyes and smiling and dealing cards. That's probably because Billy Wilder called cut. Because Mike Nichols did not not call cut, which is why you have Dustin Hoffman and Catherine Ross at the end of The Graduate looking like they don't know what to do because literally they don't know what to do. So, (laughs) uh, but I love it and it's brilliant. And that's one for the, that's in our archives. So, yes. Yeah, I, so I think a, a remake, and what's interesting is I feel like a remake would almost. I was I was first thinking like a remake would almost play like a thriller, but that to me would it, it would just kind of demean it and it would kind of devalue it if it just played well, like an erotic thriller. Oh, you mean like Sleeping with the Enemy? <laughs> no, I mean like Basic Instinct. <laughs> All right, so. I, no one ODs in sleeping I, with the enemy. I'm, damn, I'm just kidding. I, um, so, but can I? Oh, uh, please! No, 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 no. I, I, all I was going to say, just to add yeah. to what you were saying, is that like clearly there would be some things that would be revised, such as you know Baxter being a super creep, or if he was, he would be called on it. So I don't know. Or he would be creepy in different ways where maybe like the audience would see it, but he doesn't necessarily like he might accidentally let something slip. Right. With Fran. um, But he wouldn't be boastful about it. I was thinking, though, I was just wondering, I was like, I don't want to necessarily corner it to a genre because it it does kind of defy genre. Like it it has a lot of humor in it, but it also has a lot of pathos. And I was trying to think of some directors because that's where I kind of went with this rather than thinking like, okay, well, how would I do this? I was just like, I would love to just see this given to a really talented filmmaker, like a Sofia Coppola. Uh, uh Uh-huh. I'd be so (laughs) interested because Sofia Coppola does that balance between 
uh, humor. It, like there's so Bill Murray hum- is Sheldrake. <laughs> Uh, I mean, I guess so. Inevitably, you know, um, Rashida Jones's friend. No, uh, although she would be a good friend. Yeah, I feel like ten years ago, maybe seven yeah, years ago, yeah. Office yeah. Era Rashida Jones. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, I was thinking about Sofia Coppola. I was also thinking, like, I love how Wes Anderson shot. I assume New. I it was Royal Tenenbaums, New York. Yeah, yeah. So. I loved how Wes Anderson shot it. And I was thinking of like a more intimate Wes Anderson film that doesn't have like the the ensemble, but looking at how Wes Anderson would oh, would take it. So more of like, like a bottle rocket that's, you know, about the characters in this small group. No, more of a Moonrise Kingdom. Moonrise Kingdom. Okay. More of a more, a more, more of a like more intimate Moonrise Kingdom. Now, when it comes to taking, um, you know, directors who usually work with larger casts, but then make amazingly both funny and dramatic intimate films, I also think of Paul Thomas Anderson in The Phantom okay. Thread. God, you don't have to get a start on Phantom Thread, Dan, do you? No, I can't remember any of the quotes from it right now anyway. So... Um, oh but my god it's so good I don't know so I was kind of that's that's kind of where I was thinking I'm sure there there are a lot of other great filmmakers that are, that are not coming to mind also because my like the first people I think of are people who were making movies when I was just devouring them and yeah. it's you know it's Sofia Coppola Wes Anderson Paul right. Thomas Anderson yeah. other people not named Anderson <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I mean it's a really interesting one because, like you were saying, it could go genre-wise in a lot of different directions. I think that one of the things that makes it such an endearing movie is, of course, Jack Lemmon's performance and his quirks. You know, the way that he is with his nasal spray, the way that he, you know, s- you know, strains the spaghetti on the the tennis racket. You know, those little character quirks. Uh, I think really shape the movie and make it something more than just this like debaucherous story uh, with these problematic people. You know, it's those, Mm -hmm. it's the quirks that make the character, which kind of makes the movie. Hmm. Oh, you know, who'd be a decent Bud Baxter, Jack Quaid. He's on my list. He's on your list. I'm not even kidding. (laughs) How okay, that is really, really weird. Why I've would, been watching why the you th- boys. Oh, I see. I never I haven't seen that. But um Oh, it's good. I, I love Carl Urban. So I'm I, oh, I okay. Yeah, once after after watching I haven't watched the last episode of the first season yet, but it's like so after funny. watching that I was also thinking Jack Quaid, which is so weird because he's like I feel like he hasn't I don't know, been in so many things that like he would be on one's list of like go-to people he's oh, been in, now he's been in quite a few things he's been in quite a few things but he's in scream he's gonna be in scream five cool so who's on your i want to hear more well, of your so, list all right so you're, you're, is this through the times well here we'll talk about that so i definitely think that a remake would be great i don't want to see a prequel we don't need to know the genesis of all this stuff i don't need to see or i don't want to see a sequel because i don't want to know how things didn't end up between, you know, Fran and Baxter. And I don't know. It, it just seems like a really great 
story to tell that could work in any time. It's it just would work. It just would work. So well, it's also I mean, it's a great story in the, you know, the quote unquote Me Too era. Totally. Totally. And you could do like, so much more with it. You could do so oh, much it, more with it. Yeah. But, but please go on. Yeah. So I was thinking about it and it's like, this seems like the kind of movie that would have been, you know, going from like the the 90s through pretty much present day, that would have been something that would have been like produced by Lorne Michaels and starring whichever like cute, quirky SNL cast member, you know, was really hitting that season. So like early Will Ferrell, you know, like something that like Andy Samberg would have been in, you know, in his younger days, Jason Sudeikis, I feel like when they were putting him in all these movies, he would have been that kind of guy, mm. you know, the person who can yeah. do a more serious movie, but is like quirky and fun and just like to watch what they're doing. And, you know, currently, I think it'd be really fun to see somebody like A.D. Bryant, you know, doing the Baxter role. You know, somebody who you can totally see her being pulled in those two directions between being yourself and also just following what you're supposed to do. You can see that with her. She's proven her range so much, especially on like Shrill. Yeah, um, yeah. And aside from A.D. Bryant for present day and Jack Quaid, other people that I think that I'd really like to see doing this would be at the thing at the top of my list would be Aquafina, as Baxter, as or Baxter, Fran? Baxter. Oh, okay, you, you know, and it doesn't necessarily, and I don't think that it would be a straight up gender swap because eh. I think that in order for it to work, the the asshole executives need to be men, or maybe mostly men. Although what's interesting is when I was like, who'd make a good Sheldrake? For some reason, Tilda Swinton popped into my head. She'd be an excellent Sheldrake. I know, right? Maybe even as a man. Male, I was like male or female. Yeah. I don't know. Tilda Swinton is... yeah, Totally. Um, I thought Aquafina would be great. Uh, I don't know if you saw The Farewell, but she's fantastic in that. She's got serious drama chops, even though her character, much like Jack Lemmon, you know, tiptoes this line between drama and comedy. And she's just so funny. I I really, really enjoy her. And um, Lakeith Stanfield is another one that I think would be really cool in a Baxter role. We all love Lakeith Stanfield here on Ruined Childhoods. Yeah. Uh, I, I, no objections Somebody here. else that I really... Two, I have two others on my list, and these are both women. And I, I don't know if I'm pronouncing her last name right, because I don't think I've ever heard it spoken, but Maya Erskine, who is on Pen15, she's... Uh, I think she actually did a romantic comedy with Jack Quaid. Uh, in the past year or two she is tremendously talented uh she's so super funny and quirky and weird and i'd love to see her just do more and um the other person that i was thinking and this is maybe like my bottom of the list would be florence Pugh, just because i'd want to see her try to do this type of role as a baxter yeah Ah, interesting. Well, I mean, yeah. I think she, you know she's she's shown like you know a good deal of versatility. So, yeah. I I would have no objection to and seeing that. Director wise, I had two: Olivia Wilde, who uh, I really loved her work on Booksmart. 
And the other one was Paul Feig, star of Ski Patrol and Heavyweights, who uh, (laughs) have you seen A Simple Favor? No, I haven't. Oh, I haven't yet. I think you'll like A Simple Favor. Uh, It's a really well done, kind of funny, like thriller. And Mm. uh, it's the kind of thing that I see tonally working really well with something like The Apartment. My favorite of his so far has got to be Spy. Really? I thought Spy... Not Bridesmaids? Bridesmaids is so good. Uh, 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 You know, all right, okay. Yeah, it's tough to say. I love... I do love Bridesmaids. Um, Oh, God, some of it is so uncomfortable. Uh, It's so good. Yeah, Bridesmaids is great, but I, I have to say, like, Spy really exceeded my expectations. I, I've only seen it once. I remember enjoying it. I mean, it's... I'm also Melissa, a big Jason Statham fan. It's Melissa McCarthy, Jason, Jason Statham, directed by Paul Feig. It's like, how could it really be so bad? It's To me, it was just in this cluster of, hey, wouldn't it be funny if Melissa McCarthy did this? movies right right yeah and it is yeah, funny I it didn't is funny. see most of those <laughs> oh tammy uh life of the party life of the party was, was tammy the one she was with susan sarandon yeah there's identity thief identity thefts with oh, jason bateman wa- oh god we watched that we red boxed that okay and you made it i don't know why night. i felt the need to point that out yeah, i made it a red box <laughs> night uh before covid yeah. uh but we yeah i remember we we started watching identity thief and turned it off halfway through it was wow i i was i, I was disappointed because i was like how could this at least not at least just be funny? I remember it was one and it was one of those like, you know, end of the week, like, oh, it's been a long week. I just want to watch something and laugh. And then it, yeah. it was just like, I hate myself for choosing yeah, this. It was, it was fine. It was fine. Yeah. I don't. You know, it's like know. post-arrested development Jason Bateman. Like but post-arrested development Jason Bateman it tends to be pretty solid. I think so. that it was like, you know, just at that moment where it was like. Okay, let's give him this to star in, and then but like it was now, post horrible bosses, I think. Oh, was it post horrible bosses? Might have been post horrible bosses, which I enjoy horrible bosses. You know, I don't really remember it all that well. Jennifer Aniston would make an interesting Sheldrake. Jennifer Aniston, well, Jennifer Aniston as Sheldrake would be very similar to Jennifer Aniston in Horrible Bosses. That's uh, true. That's true. Uh, but yeah, Jennifer Aniston would would make a really interesting. And also, Sheldrake. I feel like maybe uh, ten years. I feel like ten years ago. Charlie Day would have been Baxter. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah. Sure. Why not? Yeah, Johnny, you, who else? How would you I, also I, feel I, about something like this being a series? I was thinking about that. And I was like, is it just going to be like what the whole season of like sort of the so like the ongoing storyline is kind of the love triangle between him, Fran and Sheldrake. And like the week to week is like who's trying to use his apartment this week? Yeah, I don't know. I I mean, I think that there's would a you potential- set it in. Would you do it? Like, would it be kind of like, you know, oh, the next Mad Men? You know, here's well, no, here's kind of how I feel like it would be. And I unfortunately it wasn't picked up for a second season, but when they did the series for High Fidelity with uh, Zoe Kravitz, which I don't have you had a chance to to watch it? No, I think you'd really like it. It's actually legit, like really good. And I was actually oh, bummed I'm, when I saw that it wasn't coming back for a second. I thought it was a mistake. I am it wasn't coming sure. Back for a second season. 
I am sure it is. It is. It is good. There's a lot of shows that are good, but I'm like, I look at them and I'm like, I need light. <laughs> and I'm like, this is going to be way too like contemplative of like humanity and emotions. I either want to watch like kickboxer or well, I, the boys is kind of borderline, okay. honestly, so, because there's some what shit I'm, in that. But what I'm but. saying is something like high fidelity, which was a series that adapted from, well, adapted from a movie adapted from a book. I don't know which one it is closer, which to. was also adapted into a musical, of course. So, you know, what it did is when you have a movie that's, you know, hour and a half, two hours, whatever, it has to have an ending. Whereas a TV show, you can meander from it. So it's like maybe the Fran storyline drops off at a certain point and like it's kind of just like, you know what, forget it. And it takes a while of, you know, soul searching from Baxter to to eventually work its way back to the Fran character and I don't know, maybe there is something to it. Maybe there's some, because you then have more time to explore the the changes in, in the emotions for these characters that, you know, really develop their arcs. Whereas like when you're watching a movie, there are weeks that just mm. aren't shown. They just disappear. Right. And you could potentially, oh, sorry. I'm not saying it would be in real time, but like, you know, you would have an opportunity to really explore some of the other stuff going on. Does Baxter have any friends? The, well, you know, oh, you, you know, Mrs. O- Miss Olsen, like that. The the car- Of course, she would have to have the name changed because Mad Men, right? But, yeah. Uh, but like exploring that character and seeing, like, we see her. She's the only yeah. one other. She's really the only other one we see out of the office. Sure. Yeah. Of the women, because she's in the Chinese restaurant yeah. and sees. Yeah. So what a funky restaurant, by the way. I know, right? I was like, where is that? Um, <laughs> I mean, it's nowhere near Seattle, but <laughs> I, was, I was like, oh, I wonder if they're doing a curbside pickup. Yeah, right. You get whatever that, uh, what she got, a daiquiri or something, whatever that frozen drink was that she gets. Yeah. To go. Yeah, frozen daiquiri. Well, daiquiri, you can get daiquiris to go. You could, In New Orleans, you could do that oh, for sure. ages. Of course. You could go through a drive-thru and get a frozen daiquiri. That's wild. What a weird in world. Louis- it, it, well, Louisiana. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's a different world. All yeah. right. Well, so any any final thoughts on, on the apartment? No, other than I'd love to hear what everyone listening thinks. You can email us, ruinedchildhoodspod at gmail.com. Uh, we're on Twitter at ruined underscore pod, Instagram at ruined childhoods pod. I, but yeah, I don't know. I I'd love to hear what other people think because it's such a it's such a great story. And also, I, where is it streaming right now? This is streaming on one of the Prime. platforms. It's on Amazon Prime. Yeah, give it a watch. Like it holds up. This movie moves for something that's from like 1960. It's like it feels like it could have been made last year. It has a great pace to it. It's really well shot. Like I said, there's some cool stuff that it it evokes memory. Like you know, and it might. I'm not promising you that you're going to think about you know Fight Club. And if you don't like Fight Club, maybe you won't. no. But it's an interesting thing to think about while you're watching it. But just and thinking about you know the the films you know Fight Club, American Beauty, um, oh Fight Club and American Beauty were the same year. <laughs> Crazy. 1999. <laughs> yeah. Ah, the year I graduated college. If only Kevin Spacey was beaten to a pulp. Uh, anyway, moving shit. on. 
yeah, moving on. So uh, then I guess without any further ado, I can uh, tease what, what will be coming up we next. We got another theme month, baby. Yes. <laughs> why? Because why not? You know what? It is October, which doesn't mean just mean we're watching movies with actors in them. We are watching movies with one specific actor. A-Y-K. Dan, an A, an actor, actroid, Dan Aykroyd. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah. Why not? You know what? I feel like Dan Aykroyd doesn't get his... Is proper is proper due. So uh, stock up on your Crystal Skull vodka and listen along with us because we're talking about Gross Point Blank on the next one. Yes, Gross Point Blank, which I thought you know you mentioned uh, High yeah. Fidelity a few minutes ago. John, and John Cusack. Cusack earlier, yeah, yeah. I yeah. uh, love Gross Point Blank. What a fun movie! I don't know yes. yet if it's streaming anywhere. Um, I know I have a copy myself, but uh, if you haven't watched it in a while, uh, give it a, give it a watch, seek it down. Um, it is just such a cool movie. You know, one of Good my time. favorite Jeremy Piven roles. Good. All right. I, all right. We're, I, we'll uh, talk we're about start talking about one. Girls Point Blank. Yeah. All right. So. All right. Okay. Good journey. Good journey. Good journey.